Today we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, specifically, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 21 through 39. You'll, you'll find that on page 990 uh, in your pew Bible. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 39. Do you ever have one of those days? One of those days that is simultaneously unique and different, yet also speaks to who you are, sort of represents much about you. I had one of those days recently, a couple weeks ago, and it started on a Thursday and ended on a Friday. And typically on Thursdays, I work from home. I, I go up to the seminary to teach on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and Tuesdays and Thursdays are home office days. But this particular Thursday, a couple weeks ago, uh, I wasn't at home. I found myself uh, driving to Western Mass, uh, to the Berkshires. You see, my uh, older son, my fifth grade boy, uh, his school class was going on a retreat. They were going to a camp uh, for Thursday, Thursday night, and then all day Friday. Now, my wife, uh, she's an administrator at this school, and what that uh, meant was um, I had to, or perhaps I should say got to, be one of the male chaperones for this camp. Now, I typically don't look forward to driving to Western Mass to be in a camp and cabin full of fifth grade boys when I'm used to being at home with my laptop and my cup of coffee and whatever television show on that I'm trying not to let distract me from my work. That's my typical Thursday. But this Thursday, I was traveling. So we we get to Western Mass, uh, and the, the counselors, for the most part, are taking care of the day activities. But then evening comes, and that's when my job Begins And so I start sitting at a table with a bunch of 10-year-old boys trying to um, convince them that manners are appropriate and, and trying to, you know, uh, uh, get some of them to serve one another and develop these skills. And, and then we get through dinner. We clean the trays. We then go down to the campfire where the counselors are, uh, where I get to experience an hour or so of campfire chants, uh, which never leave your head once they've come in. Uh, they continue to haunt me to this morning. Um, and, and then after the campfire is over, we go back to the cabin, to the bunkhouse, where there is no power, no heat, no water, 10 bunk beds full of 10-year-old boys, an age at which body odor begins, Right, you know, you're starting to get the sense. And, and my job at that point is to try to get these boys into pajamas and into their bed, which I discover at that moment how little I enjoy that situation and that environment and how agitated I become. But we, we succeed. We, we get this. This happens. And then now I have to go to bed in this cabin with beds made for 10-year-olds um, out of mattresses made of rock salt. And, and I am... Um, I am now trying to sleep. Now, one of my jobs as the, as the chaperone is should a boy in the middle of the night feel the need to go to the restroom, I must escort them uh, across the campground to where the restroom is. Now, mind you, in the middle of the night, 
A fifth grade boy does not wake you up by, by going up to you gently. Mr. Jennings, Mr. Jennings. No, it's flashlight right in the eyeball, right? That's, that's how they wake you up. I had that experience a couple of times. When we get through the evening, I get up real quick. Um, you know, I fill my car full of sleeping bags, and I you know, proceed then to drive to the North Shore uh, to where I work uh, to teach all day. Uh, and, and I teach. I, I, I really don't remember at all what I taught my students that day, uh, but I, I somehow teach. 5 o'clock p.m. rolls around. Uh, I get in the car and now proceed to drive to the South Shore you know, through the tunnel and through the traffic of everyone heading out for the weekend. That was my very unique day. But in a lot of ways, as I, as I consider that 24-hour period, um, it says a lot about my life. You know, husband, that's why I was there. Father, that's why I was there. You know, teacher, you know, that's why I was trying to cram in you know, lesson plans, and then driving to the North Shore to teach. You know, I'm a commuter, right? You know, that, that, I drink a lot of coffee. I mean, there was a lot of things that that day was indicative of. Well, that's what we're going to see here. We're going to read uh, about a day, a very full day in the life of Jesus, where a lot of things happen. And, and what, I, what I want us to consider is What is it about this day that tells us so much of who Jesus is? Follow along as I read, beginning with verse 21 of chapter 1 of Mark. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, They exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The word of the Lord. Mark is very interesting. The the first 20 verses 
of chapter 1 is like just a series of quick hitters, of bullet points, of summary statements. And in the first 20 verses of chapter 1, you know, Mark introduces John the Baptist. He talks about the baptism of Jesus. He introduces and, and, and briefly mentions Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. In fact, Mark does in 20 verses of chapter 1 what, what Matthew takes four chapters to cover. It's, there's not a lot of detail. It's just very hit after point after point until we get to verse 21. And then there's a screeching halt. All of a sudden, this fast-paced, fast-moving, summary statement uh, gospel goes to extreme detail about one day, one 24-hour period. The, the brevity of the first 20 verses highlight the significance of the next 20 verses. So what is it about this day that Mark considered right and proper for where he wanted to begin the main of his argument. What is it about this day? And, and you know, as we were reading through it, probably one of the things you, you gleaned was the, the constant through line, the thread of authority. How authority is, is throughout this entire day. You know, in fact, as, as he's starting out preaching in the synagogue with verse 21 and 22, uh, you know, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now, understand, in first century uh, Judaism, uh, the synagogue practices, uh, no one off the streets can just show up and speak. They didn't have open mic night. You know, uh, you had to be invited to speak. So the fact that uh, Jesus is teaching here already speaks to the reputation he has begun to develop in, in Galilee. But also when you spoke at a synagogue, uh, the, the normal order was to, you know, open up the scriptures of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and, and read from it and then teach from what you read. And so this is, this is likely what Jesus did. And I find it fascinating that, the, fascinating that the people were amazed because he taught as one who had authority. And then what you would expect the phrase to be, which is, you know, they taught, he taught as one who had authority like the teachers of the law. I mean, keep in mind, the teachers of the law, these scribes, they were the ones that had authority in the synagogue. They were the experts. They were the ones who had been trained. The, the natural sort of order of things would have been this, you know, amazement that this cult phenom, you know, this, this son of a carpenter was teaching like the teachers of the law. But, but rather, the, the contrast is even greater than that. He is teaching like one who had authority, not like the experts. The, the contrast, the, 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 the weight of the intensity of Jesus' presence in his teaching drives not a comparison, but a contrast. That compared to Jesus, the experts are the ones without meaning and authority. What is it Jesus taught? Mark doesn't tell us uh, the specifics here. But I think we can gather from uh, what he mentions elsewhere in the gospel a pretty good idea of the content of Jesus' teaching. Uh, just, look, uh, just look the verses above. Look at verse 14 and 15 where we have this summary statement of Jesus' teaching and what he preached and proclaimed. 
verse 14 of chapter 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This was what Jesus taught. He taught the good news of God. He, he taught that the time of fulfillment had arrived. Everything that God had been doing you know, in, in the salvific plan of his people was now coming to its culmination, to its apex with the arrival of Christ. He taught that with, uh, with him comes the kingdom of God. You know, the sovereignty of God is present with, with Jesus. We, we see this continue on through the Gospel of Mark in chapter 4 when Jesus is teaching in parables. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 8, when uh, Jesus is teaching about uh, the, the necessity that the Son of Man must die, that Jesus must die on the cross, he was teaching them about why he had come, you know, the, the good news of God. And so uh, I think we can be pretty confident that this is what he taught here on this particular Sabbath in this particular synagogue. And the people were amazed. He was proclaiming the sovereignty of God. He was proclaiming uh, with an authority and to be an authority. And as this was going on, a man in their synagogue was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, verse 24, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, Holy One of God. This poor man, this wretched man, I mean, the, the, the sense here is this man is completely occupied. It is an alien possession that has occurred. And, and this man isn't the one talking. It's the demon within him that is talking. And, and the demon, you know, is, is, is crying out against Jesus. And, and Jesus responds in verse 25, Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. There's, there's lots of interesting little tidbits in this brief account. You know, how much did the demons know about Jesus? What, you know, what is happening there in this dialogue? There's, a little, there's lots of interesting things here, but one, one steady point is this is no contest. This is not a battle among equals. This is not a conflict at all. This is not a fight. The demon immediately recognizes the power of Christ. Christ has complete authority in this situation. Notice Christ speaks, tells him to be quiet, and the demon is quiet. Christ speaks, tells, tells the demon to come out, and the demon must depart. There's not an ongoing match. In fact, this is what we see about Jesus' power uh, over demons and his exorcisms throughout Mark. Consider Mark 5, verses 1 to 20, where you have a man who, who is even more pitiful and wretched than this individual. You have a man who, who lives among the tombs, who is, is uh, so uh, possessed by so many demons that when the demons are asked who they are, the reply is legion. You're familiar with the story. This man who the townspeople had tried to chain because of his strength, and yet his, his shackles and his fetters 
you know, are broken numerous times. This, this moment, this possessed by legion, it is no battle. It is no contest. Upon, immediately upon the arrival, if you, when you uh, look in chapter 5 of Jesus, uh, the, the man has fallen down, the demon has, has taken control of him, and he is, the demon is begging, you know, to let him stay in the country or to, you know, send us to pigs. You know, the, the demon is begging of Jesus, do not torment us, you know, do not destroy us. There's no war going on here. Jesus' authority is the stronger power. He speaks, the demon must leave. In fact, Jesus' power over the evil spirits is of such a nature and of such a quality that in Mark chapter 3, the scribes from Jerusalem, when they they come to Jesus and, and, and in considering his power over the evil spirits, the scribes say to Jesus and accuse him of working for Satan. Their, their logic is, in essence, Jesus, you must be working with Satan and have Beelzebul inside you because that is why you are doing damage to all of Satan's minions. Now, what's interesting in Jesus' response, his first response to them, is that is the dumbest logic I've ever heard. Right? That's moronic logic. And then he tells a parable. He tells a parable of how um, you know, a man cannot enter into a strong man's house and, and rob from him unless he first incapacitates, binds the strong man, and then the stronger man can take the belongings. And how that parable works is the strong man who has the house uh, is, is Satan. And Jesus is the stronger man who comes in, incapacitates Satan, and then takes from the house that which Satan was sure was his. Jesus came to set the captives free. There is power in his voice. Notice an interesting parallel between the, uh, the teaching of Jesus, who has authority like this, and, and his ability to uh, command the demons with just his word, the utter impotence of of the, of the demon. There's an interesting parallel in that in both instances, Jesus speaks and it happens. His words are effectual. They are dynamic. They are muscular. He speaks and it is. This is the power of God. Right? It is God who could speak and there exists. And we look at creation. And, and this is what Jesus does. He speaks and he has the authority. And, and the people here in the synagogue, they, they recognize this, this overlap, right? In verse 27, what is this? A new teaching and with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. What they are, what they are rightly discerning is that uh, the, the proclamation of Jesus, his his. Uh, teaching that the kingdom of God has come in his presence, that the sovereign power of Christ, you know, that the exorcisms affirm the validity of that teaching. They demonstrate his authority. 
The, the exorcisms are instructive and persuasive to the truth of what Jesus says about himself and the coming of the, the stronger one. The day continues. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee, verse 28. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. It's a very private moment here in this house. This is not a public spectacle. This wasn't done in front of the crowds. Two things strike me about this moment. First is the tenderness of Jesus. Notice here, he, he's not rebuking the fever. The, the fever is not a demon. We, we have to be careful of labeling everything that causes suffering and strife a demon. The fever is not a demon here, but it is still causing suffering. It is still causing this woman trouble. Yet what does Jesus do? Here was the one who we just read, who we just saw, when confronted with the man with the evil spirit, he spoke sternly. Be quiet come out of this man. He, he rebuked him with the power of his voice. You know, the, the power of the one who can calm the winds and still the waves. What does he do here? He holds her hand. He touches her. The profundity of the power of Jesus' command is matched by the sublime of his gentleness. He is gentle with this woman, and he is tender, and he is loving. I'm also struck by, again, the vitality of his voice, of his command, of his will, and the full restoration of this woman. Notice that, that when he touches her, when he holds her, when, when he heals her, it is a full healing. The woman who was unable, I mean, the sense is unable to do anything, stricken with fever, now is able to full get, uh, fully capacitated to get up and to serve and to be active instantaneously. I don't know about you, but when I'm recovering from a fever, it's a long, drawn-out process. Sometimes intentionally so. You know, there's a, there's a bit of, uh, I really am feeling better, honey. I really am. I, just, I think I can get out of bed today. Maybe I'll just go to the couch for a little bit. And I, if you could get one of the kids to help with the dishes, I'm sorry. Uh, can you handle Harry? And I'd love a sandwich. And can I watch my shows? I'm feeling better, right? And then you sort of the next day, yeah, I am feeling a little, I don't think I'm up to doing anything yet, but uh, uh, I, I think I'm feeling a little bit better coming back to the world of living, right? It's this gradual 
process. Not with Jesus. Fully restored. And, and, and the healings here are doing that which also the exorcisms are doing. They are instructive. They are persuasive. They are bearing witness to who Jesus is. The arrival of the kingdom of God and of his authority. Uh, Isaiah 35, when he talks about the coming of the Messiah, what does he say? That the eyes of the blind will be opened. That the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. That the lame will leap like deer. That the tongues of the mute will sing for joy. This is what we're seeing happening this day. Then evening comes, verse 32. After sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He, he also drove out many demons. He would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. If you're wondering why it was evening before this crowd came, it's because it's the Sabbath. You didn't, you didn't go places you know, on the Sabbath. You, you didn't bring or carry. They, they, they wanted to wait till sunset when the Sabbath was over. And I understand why the townsfolk are coming here. I understand why the whole village is showing up because not only do they have this sense of there's, there's a unique one here, there's this one who has power, but hope has come to town. You know, and, and, and they are drawn by hope. Jesus is unique his authority is unique. And he is healing. And he is setting the captives free. The day continues. Very early in the morning, while it's still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. You know, now the sense of this, you know, there's a press of people. And, and Jesus is going to find some place where there just aren't people. So he can, he can pray. And, and uh, the, the disciples, Simon and those who are with him, the other, the other apostles, come to him. And their, their, their attitude, their posture is, Jesus, what are you doing out here? Everyone's looking for you. There are many at the door needing healed. There are many who are, uh, you know, possessed with demons. There are many in need of your help. What are you doing here? And I think we're getting a glimpse. We're getting a glimpse here in chapter 1 of the misunderstanding of the disciples have at this point regarding Jesus. A misunderstanding that will continue to go through the ministry of Jesus. You see, for them, these disciples must be thinking this is finally all coming together. Look at the popularity. First, he was invited to speak at the synagogue, and now that we got that opportunity, you know, and he's been able to do these great things, look how much everybody is thronging to be in front of him. That they must have seen that this is, this is what it is. This is power. This is the display of authority. 
But Jesus responds to them by saying, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also, preach the kingdom of God. That is why I have come. The disciples saw a strong man who could do wondrous things. What, did they, what they did not see was that why he had come was to bring the good news of God. That why he had come was to go to the cross. We've been looking at this in 1 Corinthians. The, the foolishness of the cross, Pastor Jeremy has been teaching us, you know, it's foolishness to the world, and it's the wisdom of God. Think about a man hanging on a cross, on a cross beam, is the perfect picture of powerlessness. One who hangs on the cross is, is stripped of clothing, stripped of possessions, is uh, unable to even determine how and when they will die. They're even stripped of that. They, they, don't know, they don't know the time of their death. That is at their jailer's discretion. Here is Jesus who is literally at the mercy of, for which there is none, the Roman government. He's mocked. He's spit. It's no wonder that those around the cross would say, look at this man. He could save others, and he cannot save himself, because he could save others. Look what he did this day. This Sabbath day, what he was able to do, this great display of power. Yet on the cross, it is powerlessness that seems to be in view. But what the world doesn't see was this moment that looks like weakness is the great, mighty act of God. The cross and the power of his death and resurrection. You know, on the cross, the forgiveness of sins was made possible. On the cross, the judgment of God was poured out on Jesus. This was a display of great power. We've been talking about the voice of Jesus and, and the power in his words. He speaks and it happens. He speaks and they're healed. He speaks and, and demons are cast out. Jesus' words are effectual and dynamic and muscular. And all of the words that he was uttering uh, and, and speaking during the time of his ministry build up and culminate to the great declaration, the, the powerful strength, the miraculous declaration of it is finished, which he cries from the cross. This is the power of the stronger one, of Jesus and his words. This is who he is. And as, as I was considering 
you know, this passage, and I was thinking about the power of God, the kingdom of God. You know, who, who can resist Christ's summons or withstand his utterances? I was thinking about where, where is the authority of the kingdom today? Where do we see evidences of Christ's authority, his sovereignty? I think one of the things this passage tells us is, is we see it in his exorcisms and healings. Today, demons are real. Possessions are real. Jesus' words are stronger. He came to set the captives free. You know, the, 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 the power of Jesus and, 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 and exorcisms is not in beads and trinkets. It's not in magical formulas. It's not in special words or an appropriate ambiance atmosphere. It is Jesus' decision. It is his willful determination to speak freedom. Miraculous healings are real. People are healed today by the power of Christ. When, when one of us is hurting, when we have a loved one who is suffering, what do we do? We do what the villagers do, right? We, we get them to Jesus. We pray. We, we entreat Jesus for healing, Sometimes there is. There is a, a, a complete healing that occurs. We are right to pray for healing. And we praise God when it happens because when that healing happens, we are getting a taste, we are getting a glimpse of the authority of God, of what Jesus can do. Sometimes... The healing does not occur. I know this. You know this. We may even be quite confident that a healing is going to happen. And we we are praising the Lord because we believe a healing is going to happen. And it doesn't. You know, this, this day in the life of Jesus speaks to that as well. Jesus doesn't stay in the house. If, if his intention was to physically heal all, then stay and let him continue to come. But he says why he came, why he came was to proclaim who he is. And, and the healings, the great miraculous healings, they speak to that, they testify to that. But understand this, even, even today when we pray and, and, and the Lord in His will and in His wisdom grants the full restorative healing and it is beyond contest that it is the work of God, that is still only a temporary healing. That person will get sick again, as we all do. Their body will decay, as all of our bodies do. They will die, as we all will. The healing 
that Christ came to bring wasn't simply a temporary healing of the body. It was the eternal healing of our soul. God promises us a new body of which it will never fade nor ever falter. Exorcisms, healings, they still today show Christ's authority. Where else do we see the authority of Christ? I think what, what I need to hear, I think what maybe you need to hear, is that the power and the authority of God is in the gospel. It is in the gospel message. This is what Christ came to proclaim, that he is king. This is where his authority is most evident in the proclamation of his word, in his gospel. What this means for me is, is, and what this means for you, is we should be encouraged. We do not need to fear anything. He is the stronger one. Whatever illness we are facing, whatever brokenness our body is experiencing, it cannot claim our soul before it's in the hands of the stronger one. Jesus is the stronger one. Whatever relationship, whatever relationship is, is ripped apart in our lives, it is not stronger than the restorative power of the gospel. Husbands, there are no perfect wives. Wives, there are no perfect husbands. Children, there are no perfect parents. Parents, there are no perfect children. Right? We are all blemished by how we were raised. We are all blemishing those we are raising. This is the reality of our relationships. We are, you know, broken and bent people. But there is no relationship so broken that the power to create from that which is not cannot save. Our relationships are not stronger than the gospel's power to heal. Our sin is not stronger than the gospel. There are times when it can seem that our, our addictions, our bitterness, our anger, our lusts, our lies, our gossiping, our self-loathing is more than we can bear. He is the stronger one. The cross is stronger than your sin. His resurrection is stronger than your sin. In him there is hope. In him, there is forgiveness. In him, there is tenderness and love and strength. I think you know, the, the power of his authority is here in the church. The church is a citadel of strength. When we are united in the Holy Spirit, when we are committed to the gospel, we are a fortress that stands against the powers that war in this world. 
The church is a citadel. When, when we are governed by the gospel, when we see things, when we embrace holiness and forgiveness simultaneously, there is strength. Pastor Jeremy has been uh, urging us uh, you know, through this study of 1 Corinthians that when we are weak, when we are attacked, when we are hurting, we need to lean in to the church, not lean away, because in the church there is strength. As an elder, one of my favorite moments in our church calendar is when uh, we have new members, not because it increases our role or statistically we can brag about growth, but because when members join the body of Christ, we are, 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 we are strengthened by each other's faith. We strengthen one another. This is why we are constantly uh, urging you to, to come to church on Sunday morning to be a part of a Sunday school class, to get involved in a growth group. You see, those are the big three. We have, we have Sunday evening and midweek offerings, but those are sort of the big three where we gather and strengthen one another. I know this past year, you know, uh, my family took a lot of strength from our growth group, not simply because we were dealing with a medical diagnosis that they were able to serve and help us, but also just because we were strengthened in our faith, talking with one another about who Jesus is and what he is doing in our lives. Lean in. The authority and the power of Christ is in his word and the studying of his his scripture. There are, there, there are alarming statistics about the number of children who grow up in a church and then when they leave church, when they, when they leave the house, they leave church. It's not because as they get older, their church is irrelevant, but rather they have not been embraced in the gospel. The gospel has, was not surrounding them. His parents pray that the gospel will surround and will dwell in the heart of your children. Show them what it means to walk in the gospel. Show them what it means to trust in Christ. Constantly pray for their salvation. I'll end with this. Without Christ, I am a captive in need of a liberator. Without Christ, I am infirmed, in need of a healer. Without Christ, I am ignorant, in need of a teacher. Without Christ, I am weak, in need of a king and his cross. Brothers and sisters, the good news is Christ is still speaking today. His words are still effectual. Let us hear his voice, the voice of the stronger one. Let's pray. Lord, you are the stronger one. Lord, you are the authority. Lord, you are the one who came to set the captives free. 
You are the one who heals the soul. You are the one who brings life from where there is death. Lord, who, who can separate us from you? Where we are, we are convinced that neither death nor life Angels or demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, or anything in all of creation can separate us from your love because you are the stronger one. You have claimed us and you hold us. Father, strengthen your church. Strengthen us in, in you. Let us be guided by you. Let us be a strong fortress for you. Strengthen your church, Lord. Strengthen our faith that we will lean in, that we will trust in you, that we will not simply be reduced to marveling at wonders, but we will seek to understand the power of your salvation. Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done. You are the stronger one. Lord, there are today people here who are suffering, who have been receiving a diagnosis, who have been going to doctor's offices and who are facing suffering from illness and disease and broken bodies. Lord, heal them. Give us a glimpse of the power of your restorative word. Lord, we ask that you heal them. Lord, there are There are those here whose soul are dead, whose ears are deaf, and whose eyes are blind, and and they do not see you. Open their eyes, unstop their ears. Speak life to where there is nothing but death and sin. Welcome them into your kingdom for your glory. Jesus, you are the stronger one. And it is in your name, the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.